0: Father in heaven, what we are about to explore in Scripture, it's not easy. Some of it flies in the face of what we have always believed. So we pray, Father, that you will give us great understanding, understanding beyond ourselves. We pray, Father, that as our heart is open to what we're about to see, that it'll take root and it'll grow within us. As it grows, Father, I pray that that it will accomplish what it is supposed to. I pray that others will see you. Now, Father, once again, we have to ask that you make us listeners. And I ask that not just of our congregation, but of myself as well. I'll preach this message, but I pray, Father, you'll help me hear it just like everyone else. Thank you for sending your Spirit to us to give understanding. Thank you for giving us your presence and fellowship to give us connection. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hold on to your Bibles. We're going to come back to them in just a minute. It has long been believed that the brightest light in all of the world shines out of the top of the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas. Looks just like this. Here's some interesting bits of trivia about that light. It's called the Skybridge light. And it has been said that it is visible by airplane 275 miles away. In fact, it's even reported that pilots will use this light as a navigation tool. That's pretty crazy. There are 39 xenon lights that are required to make this thing shine as bright as it does. Those lights, each one of them individually, shines at 7,000 watts or burns 7,000 watts. They are contained in a room 50 feet below the pinnacle of this hotel or the pinnacle of the pyramid. Those 39 lights burning 7,000 watts individually when they are all on and directed through the mirrors that cause this phenomenon to happen heat the room up to 300 degrees. Here's what that room looks like. This is pretty crazy. National Geographic has reported that this light is so bright that you could read a book by it 10 miles into outer space. That is a bright light. Creates its own ecosystem, which is pretty crazy. The light burns so bright and so hot that it attracts a massive amount of moths. The moths then attract a massive amount of bats. The bats, in turn, attract a massive amount of owls that like to eat bats. It is crazy. Creates its own ecosystem. But as amazing as this light is, There was an article printed here not too long ago with this title. Take a look at this. The brightest light ever built could change the way we see the world. They're not talking about a light that shines out of a hotel in Las Vegas. They're talking about something that has been developed at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Listen to what they say about this light. Researchers from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln may have built the brightest light the world has ever known. Brighter, they say, than a billion suns. They continue to study that light and work continues on it as they are releasing more and more information. But a lot of that information is boiled down this way. When this light is used effectively, it will change the way we see the world. Now, what we have shining out of, of Las Vegas is mind-boggling what they are developing in nebraska is staggering those things though have to do with our world there are other world explorations in the realm of light best way to say it called gamma ray burst that really have some intriguing things happening as well scientists say that if they really get a handle on gamma ray burst well just take a look at what they say will happen The biggest mysteries of the universe include dark matter and dark energy will be understood. If they can really wrap their minds around gamma ray burst, what they believe is the creation of stars and other things like it, then the biggest mysteries of the universe, including dark matter and dark energy, will be understandable. They'll Come into a frame of mind for us in such a way that that we will understand things that we have never understood before. Dark matter and dark energy. Now, if you'll allow me the opportunity to be just completely 100% honest with you, I'll do that right now. I have no idea what dark matter and dark energy is. None whatsoever. When I read things like that, I'm just kind of back up against the rope saying, what in the world is dark matter and dark energy? Sounds like something that comes out of Star Trek or Star Wars. I have zero idea what it means. But I'm a preacher, so if you'll give me a little bit of grace, I'll spiritualize it. In fact, I will over-spiritualize it this morning. But I need your grace with that because I'm stepping out of the realm of science and I'm just getting into the Bible and I'm using these two terms, dark matter and dark energy and our ability to understand them, to over-spiritualize a concept. So hang with me with that, if you will, and please extend the grace to me that I need. If we were to look at this from a spiritual lens, it may very well be that what they are talking about is what Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians that we'll begin to understand some things as more knowledge comes to us that previously we've had no ability to even conceptualize. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over, listen to this, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Maybe what these scientists are talking about is a desire to understand this present darkness, or what we refer to as the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly realms. And I don't believe that that's going to happen as they figure out what gamma ray bursts really look like and what they are capable of. I believe that we'll actually be able to understand something so deep as this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as Paul would call it, when we understand the light of the world, when we understand the light that shines through God's people. That's when all of this will really become clear for us. you remember that title of that article that I showed you that led the way towards what's going on in Nebraska? Here it is again. The brightest light ever built could change the way we see the world? Well, boy, that's true. The writers of that article go on to make this statement. Some lights, like our sun, are bright enough to guide us down this tunnel we call life. Other lights change the way we see the tunnel. Boy, if we could just change one word in the midst of that statement, we would have some great understanding. If this read, some lights like our or God's son, S-O-N, are bright enough to guide us down this tunnel we call life. Other lights change the way we see the tunnel. Those other lights would be the church. Jesus has the ability to lead us through life. He shines that brightly. And when the church shines the way she's supposed to change the way we see the tunnel that's the way it's supposed to be that's the way god designed it let's go to the book of matthew and you can hear what jesus says about this issue matthew chapter 5 verse 14 jesus preaches this in the sermon on the mount so imagine all these people sitting out in front of him he says to him, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's amazing teaching. That is amazing teaching. Just look at how it starts. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Man alive. Take a look again at, at that title of that article. Here it is again, one more time. The brightest light ever built could change the way we see the world. Oh, yeah. The brightest light ever built, the church, could change the way people see everything. And the purpose for that is laid out beautifully by Jesus, to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the purpose of this light. That's the purpose of this light. But you have to understand this, it requires every individual to shine as bright as possible with the gift that is within us, the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus. And when we do individually, when we do, we are demonstrating what we have been calling the last two weeks, we are demonstrating proof of life. That's what we're demonstrating. Proof of life. Proof of life in Christ. Proof of life as we walk with the Lord. Proof of life beyond ourselves. Proof of life that gives glory to God. It's a remarkable thing. Now, I have already asked you for grace to over-spiritualize some of those articles we were looking at. I am going to ask you for another kind of grace now, the grace to show you something in Scripture that modern Christianity tends to just move right past. Modern Christianity sadly jumps right over this, and they do it for a specific reason, but it isn't right. So I want us to back up and look at something that almost appears to be a secret in Scripture. It is centered around two words in the passage that we just read. So I'm going to read for you from Matthew chapter 5, those same verses, one more time. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Two words. If you're a bold note-taker in your Bible, then underline these words and draw an arrow to the margin so that you can write some notes there because these words are the ones that people want to remove. These are the words that appear almost as if a secret in Scripture. Those two words, good works. Good works. There are a lot of people that would just like to remove that from the Bible, believing instead that we are just saved so that we can have everything that we want in Christ with zero responsibility. But as Jesus starts out in the sermon on the mount, he's not very far into it, mind you. He starts talking about Christians being the light of the world and that we are to produce good works. Wow. Wow. Now, in order to really understand this, in order for us to really explore it, I need to share two things with you. And these two things come together to help us understand the secret that we are talking about here. The first one, the first one's going to be easy for you to wrap your head around. The second one may really fly in the face of some things that you have believed for a long time. So be ready for that. Here they are, two things that help us understand this idea of good works. Number one, we are not saved by good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 teach us this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now you hold on to that. We are not saved by good works. Anyone that believes that is traveling the wrong path to believe that we can work our way into heaven will lead you as far away from God as you can possibly imagine. Don't get sucked into that. Now, that one is easy for people to embrace. That is easy for people to wrap their minds around. But part two of this secret, this is the difficult one. We are saved for good works. We are saved for good works, not by them, but for them. I want you to let that soak in just a little bit as you take a look at how David Jeremiah would teach things like this. Faith is the source of our salvation, but good works are the way we express the reality of our salvation. That's really good. Listen to it again. Faith is the source of our salvation, but good works are the way we express the reality of our salvation. Now, I don't want you to believe me on this issue. I don't want you to believe another preacher on this issue. I want you to pay attention to what the Bible has to say about it. Because, my friends, this is so significant that if we get it wrong, we may very well jeopardize our salvation. So let's make sure we get it right. This is important, important stuff. Join me in the book of James. James chapter 2. Verse 14. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He writes with great authority. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food... And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now in the realm of critical Bible study, there are three different types of faith that are called out in this one passage. In the verses that we just read, three different types of faith. The first faith... The first one that I would want to call your attention to is referred to as a dead faith. The second one is referred to as a demonic faith. The third one is referred to as a justified faith or an active faith. For the sake of the the way we're putting this together, let's call it a dynamic faith. So you have a dead faith, a demonic faith, and a dynamic faith. Before we can really get into those, it is imperative that we understand what faith is. Because for a lot of people, there's a struggle even with that issue. What is faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 would teach us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. One more time. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Even though that is a wonderful biblical definition of faith, it still sounds pretty biblical, a little bit churchy. So it is hard for us, if we're wrestling with what faith is, to really grasp that. I like the way one unknown preacher actually summed that up. Take a look. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It is believing in spite of consequences. That's what faith really is. Faith doesn't require us to say that I have to have enough evidence to believe. Faith is the ability to say that no matter what, I do believe. In spite of consequences, I believe. So once we understand that, we can go back into James chapter 2 and really start to pick apart those three different types of faith. The dead faith, the demonic faith, and the dynamic faith. Here's what you'll learn as you do, if you're really studying those. The dead faith is an intellectual-only faith. It is a faith that is centered around the mind, around the head. There are people that will say, I believe in God. Okay, have you done anything with that? Is there anything emanating out of it? Is that simply an intellectual belief? Is that all that is? If the answer is yes to those follow-up questions, then that's a dead faith. According to the book of James, not according to Phil, not according to any other preacher, that's according to the Bible. That's what we find as the the qualifying elements of a dead faith. Well, then that leads us into that second one, a demonic faith, and you saw exactly what the Bible said about that. You believe in God, good, even the demons believe, and then listen to this, and shudder. Teaching us that a demonic faith centers around the mind and the heart, the mind and the emotions. So we can believe and even have emotions attached to that belief. But if it has never transformed us, if there has never been a point of surrender, a point of change, a point of accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior unto salvation, then all you have is a demonic faith. So if we have somebody that, that steps back and says, I believe in God and, and I even do some good things, well, okay. Okay. That's demonic faith. If your head believes and and your heart still has emotions like fear attached to who God is, you may very well be risking a demonic faith. It's necessary in that situation to step back and ask ourselves, what exactly do I believe? What exactly do I want God or who do I want Him to be in my life? Who is He? Is He the person that has cast out all fear? Is he the one that I have, have come to know, not only as my Lord, but as my Savior? Is that who he is? When that happens, a dynamic faith begins to set in, because a dynamic faith is centered around our soul. It is centered in the soul, and our will is changed because of it. And the way that becomes evident is through what Jesus referred to as good works changes everything. Proof of life. Proof of life. And those good works aren't about us. Those good works are about Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, shining the light on who Jesus is, bringing glory to God the Father. That's the point of those good works. And once they are in place, once we've understood that, we have a justified, active, dynamic, Faith, proof of life, proof of life with Christ. James teaches it. Jesus teaches it. Even though we have other people that want to tell us something different, they're really teaching us that we can go down a path believing in God, and that's enough. Believing in God and even shuddering, bringing our emotions into it. But if there's never a point of surrender where we accept Jesus, for who He is, we stop short of where we need to be, because it is through Jesus Christ that we receive salvation and transformation. We become a new person. We become a new person. When that happens, that's where we need to be. Now, I know that that, that may stand in the face of some things that you have long believed. You just trust the Bible on it. You get into the book of James and you see what James says and then my challenge to you would be this. Now go back and try to unsee that in every other place that you read in Scripture because once you see that truth, you cannot unsee it. You will start reading Scripture and watch as that pops up over and over and over again. But until you know it, you'll read Scripture and never see it. So once you do, It'll always be there for you. So try to unsee it. Try to make your way through Scripture without coming across that. Old and new. James calls out Old Testament and New Testament teaching. Old and new. You will see it over and over and over again. You are saved for good works. I really like the way Warren Wiersbe says this. Take a look. The Christian life is not a series of ups and downs. It is rather a process of ins and outs. God works in us, and we work out. That's really good. If you take pictures on a regular basis on your phone, your iPad, take a picture of that quote. Write that at the front cover of your Bible, because you're going to want to hold on to it. And once you have that written in somewhere, reference Philippians chapter 2. Let's turn there together. Verse 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. Again, this is the Apostle Paul. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad. And rejoice with me. Now look how Paul starts this whole section. He starts with us working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I love the fact that he puts the word "own" in that. Work out your own salvation, thereby teaching us that salvation is personal. You cannot receive salvation solely because your parents were saved. You do not receive salvation because other family members were saved. You don't receive salvation because your friends have salvation. You have to work it out. It is personal. It is personal. It is your own. And God designed it that way so that every person will come to know Him individually. We don't come to know Jesus in groups. We don't get to hitch our wagon to somebody else's train. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And once we do, a process goes to work. And this is what Wearsby was talking about. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He works in us so that we work out and we shine the light of love on everyone around us. The purpose then becomes to give glory to God. The proof of life that exists within us, that declares to everyone around us that we belong to Him, shines light, bright light on who God is, changes the way others see the tunnel because that light changes how we see God, changes how they see God. That's the way it's supposed to work. When the church is coming together as a whole, man, you almost have to avert your eyes because it is so bright. It is so bright. That's the point of things like the Gap feeding program. That's the church. That's the church shining the light of the love of Jesus Christ all around the world, not just locally, but all around the world. Man, be a part of what's going on with Gap. Sign up, be a part of that. It is a great introduction into what we're talking about. Be a part of that, but let it be a launching point for you in good works, proof of life, so that others will see God differently through you. It's necessary for us to do that. And then once we understand that, We have to start looking at the transformation that takes place within us, the transformation of our proof of life. As last week, we talked about the proof of life that the enemy wants to offer about us. That's what comes out of this present darkness, Ephesians chapter 6. Well, God is looking for that same type of proof of life, and Paul would show us the most tangible of ways to begin And you may, just like me, wish that we could cut this verse out of Scripture. If we could just take scissors, take it right out of Scripture, boy, it would be a whole lot easier. Know which one I'm talking about? Verse 14, here you go. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why does that have to be in the Bible? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some translations of the Bible say do all things without grumbling or complaining. I like disputing because I don't dispute often. But I grumble and complain a lot more than I should. How about you? How about you? So once again, we have this proof of life coming back to the mouth. What comes out of our mouth? And we talked last week about the fact that Jesus would say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And once again, we have the mouth coming into this whole argument. In this particular case, the mouth, our speech, is tied directly to our attitude, the changing of our attitude. Grumbling and disputing, grumbling and complaining is an attitudinal issue. If we're doing that all the time, if that's what is most common in our speech, it is showing what is in our heart. It is a demonstration of negativity. And that negativity bleeds over to everything in our life. recent study actually shows five different things that negativity causes. And when it progresses to our speech, man alive, it is tough. I'm actually going to show you six things. Five of these come from these recent studies in the realm of psychology and medicine. The sixth one? comes right out of the Bible. The first five are fairly negative. The sixth one, well, you'll see. Let's just work our way through them. Here's number one, according to this recent study. Negativity makes you more likely to think negative. Now, here's what I mean by that. Negative speech, if that is the common thing that is coming out of you, you are more likely to think negatively about everything. Now, listen to what they say. The more you complain, the more likely you are to think negative thoughts later on. Neuroscientists commonly use the phrase, synapses that fire, wired together. To explain this concept, they would say, every time you complain, your brain physically rewires itself to make it easier and more likely for that reaction. Negative thinking ends up breeding more negative thinking. Synapses that fire, wired together. Now, think about the simplicity of what they just said. Every time, every time you open your mouth and complain, it becomes easier for you to do it the next time, and then the next time, and then the next time. Parents, pay close attention to this. If you see a negative trend or tendency within your children, turn that tide. Because every time they grumble and they complain, They are fusing wires together in their mind, and it will become easier and easier and easier until it becomes a way of life. Speak against it. Turn that ship and do everything that you can to make that happen. Number two, this type of thing can actually damage your memory. MRI scans show that constant complaining can lead to shrinking of the hippocampus, the region in your brain responsible for cognitive functioning. A smaller hippocampus or hypocampus leads to a decline in memory and the ability to adapt to new situations, among other functions. This can occur from even just a few days of stressing out and lead to long-term damage. Oh, be careful that you don't grumble and complain all the time. Number three. It increases your levels of cortisol, the stress hormone. When you complain, you increase your levels of cortisol, also known as the stress hormone. Chronically, high levels of cortisol can lead to a variety of health problems, including increased risk of depression, digestive problems, sleep issues, higher blood pressure, and even increased risk of heart disease. Keep that chemical cortisol at bay. My goodness. Because if you don't, look at number four. It can shorten your lifespan. Constant complaining is not only bad in the moment, but it can be detrimental in the long run. One study published in the Archives of General Psycholo- Psychiatry found that optimists live longer than pessimists, with a 55% lower risk of death from all causes and a 23% lower risk of dying from heart failure. Now, I don't want to argue with these experts, but in my 30 years of experience in ministry, it just seems to me like those that complain and argue and are constantly negative live longer than anyone else. (laughs) Here's another byproduct of it. Number five, makes the people around you negative too. The article says listening to someone complain makes you more likely to be negative as well, which can just perpetuate the desire to release all those unhappy thoughts. But take a look at number six. When you do all things without grumbling or complaining, you'll shine as a light in the world. That's the counterbalance to the other five. You'll shine as a light in all the world. The proof of your life in Christ will become evident to everyone as you shine a light on the glory of God and bring people into His presence. Just by you choosing a different path, you'll help them see something different. Dwight Moody summed that up this way. He did it so beautifully. He said, if you have a hundred men that are pursuing a relationship with God, one will read the Bible. The other ninety-nine will read Christians. That's that's you. Out of a hundred people, one will read the Bible. The other ninety-nine are gonna look at Christians. Doesn't that make sense then? Why it is that Jesus said, You are the light of the world, city on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't put it under a bushel. Set it out for everyone to see and shine brightly together as the church so that we draw people to Christ. That was God's design for His church. And man, it has worked. 2,000 years, it has worked. The church has continued to grow. In the face of all kinds of difficulties, the church has continued to grow and to prosper. Now, sadly, there are places around the world where the church is shrinking and the light is getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and that happens one person at a time, just one person at a time. So make sure that you're not pulling your light away from the church. Make sure that you're not pulling your light out of the kingdom of God, that you're causing it to glow dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until no one can see it. You make sure that it is constantly burning brightly. You make sure that it is constantly being fed. You make sure that that light gets brighter with every passing day. And here's one of the keys to doing that. It starts with your mouth. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So pay close attention to what comes out of your mouth. It reflects your attitude. It reflects your heart. Boy, it's so interesting to me that in both of these proofs of life, it comes back to the mouth. You might say, boy, Phil, I, I want to do that. I'm just not sure how. Then I'll, I'll leave you with this as the worship team comes up. Maybe you need just a simple prayer in your life. Here's one that, that works. I just saw this again this past week. I've seen it a number of times, really like it. There was an old deacon in a church that used to pray the same prayer every time he would get up. Every time he was in front of the church, no matter what he was praying for, this would always be a part of it. Lord, Lord. Prop us up on the lean-in side. Prop us up on the lean-in side. One fellow that had been in that church for a long time was really curious about that statement. So finally, he was bold enough to approach that deacon. He said, can I ask you, why do you always pray that prayer? Prop us up on the lean-in side? What does that mean? That old deacon was happy to explain it. He said this, well, see, it's it's like this. I have an old barn on my place. It's stood through a number of years and all kinds of weather. It stood through storm after storm after storm, and it's been there to do exactly what it was supposed to do. But a few years ago, I noticed that it started to lean off to one side. So I went and got myself some pine poles, and I propped it up on the leaning side so that it'd still be there doing what it was supposed to do. And he said, now when I look at that old barn, I I start to think of how I am very similar to it. I've been around a long time and I've been through all kinds of weather and I've stood through a number of different storms but from time to time I I start to lean off to one side and when that happens I I have to pray Lord prop me up on the leaning side because when I start to lean one direction that I know isn't good I get close to falling over so Lord prop me up on the leaning side and if your struggle might be with your mouth, that's a place to pray. Lord, prop me up on the lean inside. If your light isn't shining brightly, then you step back and you ask, which way are you leaning that is keeping that from happening? What's casting the shadow that's dimming it? And then you ask, Lord, prop me up on the lean inside. Lord, help me address those issues. Strengthen this, because I don't want to fall over that direction. Lord, prop me up on the lean inside. It's a prayer that helps. It's a prayer that that causes us to pay close attention where we need to. So pray that prayer. If you know that there's a struggle that's causing you to lean, then confess it to the Lord and ask Him to remove it because it'll stand, that leaning, that'll stand in the way of your proof of life. So ask the Lord to prop you up. And from time to time, take a look back at your life because you may be leaning the other direction. You need to get propped up over there. It's something that we have to continually work at. Spiritual maintenance that keeps the light shining brightly. We have to do it. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father, once again, we're asking you to help us listen to this message. What the Bible teaches us what you teach us, what your spirit guides us in and directs us in. Help us see it. And then, Father, I'm asking you to prop us up where we're leaning because we don't want to fall over. We don't want to crumble. We want to continue doing what you need us to do. We want to continue living the purpose that you have for us. Prop us up, Lord. Help us shine bright that we might help others see you. Father, that we might even see life differently. But most importantly, we want others to see you, to experience your glory. So I pray, Lord, that you'll keep us shining bright. I pray that you'll keep our proof of life out in front of us as well as in front of others. Bright as possible. Asking that in Jesus' name, amen.